0: Welcome back to Down the Hatch, the swallowing podcast. I'm Ianessa Humbert, and we have a very special, lively episode where we will be discussing a recently published paper entitled, A Survey of Clinician Decision-Making When Identifying Swallowing Impairments and Determining Treatment. It was published recently in the Journal of Speech-Language Hearing Research. And I have to warn you that this episode is rated R. There are a few references to sex and there are some cursing happening. We got a little rowdy. So I uh, just wanted to put that warning out there and enjoy the discussion. We'll get started by hearing our guests introduce
1: themselves. My name's Michaela Murr. I am a current PhD student here at the University of Florida under the mentorship of Dr. Karen Hegland. This is my first year in the program and I came here from Fort Lauderdale Delray Beach area after working in a hospital setting for about 4 years and within that setting I worked in acute care outpatient rehab and inpatient rehab. The populations I typically worked with were post stroke, Parkinson's disease, elderly population mostly will
2: say that. Cool. Um, My name is Justine Allen. I'm a first-year doctoral student under the mentorship of Dr. Emily Plowman, and I came here from University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Um, I was working clinically for nearly four years, predominantly with patients with head and neck cancer or ALS or neurodegenerative diseases, both in acute care and in outpatient and in multidisciplinary clinics. Cool.
3: And I'm Alicia, as you all know by now. I had practiced for six years before starting my doctoral program. And a fun fact related to this paper is I started working on this study back in 2015 when I very first started Mm -hmm. working with Dr. Humber at Johns Hopkins Hospital. At the time, I was doing... 50-50 split of clinical work and devoting about 20 hours a week of research time to her laboratory and that's where this paper is really where I got my feet wet in diving into some research that was relevant to clinical practice, but also speaks to how long this project has been <laughs> in the works because it is, I am now in my fourth year of my PhD and it just got published, so. Yeah.
0: wow. I will start with a little bit of background in terms of how this started. Uh, I had a postdoc before Alicia started um, and she's Dr. Phoebe McRae and she was here from New Zealand and she worked with me for a while and she would come to some talks with me, some local talks or maybe things at DRS or ASHA And we were struck by whenever we had a talk or I had a talk and the questions were not pushing the envelope and sort of the next step, it was, wait, so the larynx does this or wait, this is how swallowing works. And these were clinicians who had been working with patients with swallowing disorders for years and years and billing and their salary and everything was based on this supposed deep understanding of swallowing physiology. Mm-hmm. And the questions clearly demonstrated that people were essentially aspiration police the way the mm-hmm. questions were asked, or don't let the bullets go there, mm-hmm. let it go here, without any reason for why. And a lot of things that they were complaining about were actually is normal physiology. Mm-hmm. So I said to Phoebe, I was like, oh my gosh, we we have to, this is ridiculous. It doesn't matter if any researcher comes up with the most amazing therapy, it will still have to be delivered to not all clinicians, but some clinicians as a recipe, do this, then this, then this. So they were acting more like technicians instead of Mm -hmm. pathologists, right, who understand pathology. So um, I collected some pilot data to submit a grant to the ASH Foundation, which is affiliated with ASHA, to instead of testing out and understanding swallowing physiology, let's understand the clinician who's behind dysphagia management at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. So that grant was funded and the first aim of that grant was to do a national survey um, to understand how well clinicians can identify impairments. And so this is finally the outcome of that and I have to say the results were so startling that we actually had trouble um, publishing it in our first go-round in a particular journal. It ended up in this journal but um, it was you know comments like, wow, you know, this could be bad for our field. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, it already is bad for our field. We're just documenting yeah. that. Data, right. The
3: data is the data.
0: Yeah. So so what, I'll let you guys jump in however you see fit. I just wanted to give a little history of how we got here. Who wants to start?
1: Well, I would just like to say congratulations on finally getting <laughs> Yeah. Sort of a nice culmination from where you began and now you're sort of approaching the end of your yeah. PhD journey so far, so mm-hmm. that's a long journey. Encouraging <laughs> for you, a new doctor. Yes. yes, it is.
3: <laughs> well, I think it, the paper, maybe before we get into, like, deep into the content, just really talking about what this paper means and what um, the intention was and and kind of our thoughts now that it's out is that this was never a paper to get at clinicians, mm-hmm. and I think that in the beginning, it felt like that way. And I it, the paper has evolved a lot. And to really reflect that we're not by any means trying to say clinicians are doing a bad job and, oh, they're inaccurate or anything like that. It's more of how and where do we focus our efforts to elevate our field? Mm-hmm. And this is the state of the field and what are the things that are contributing to the ways that we aren't able to do our jobs as well, right? So um, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, this paper was a lot of years of really refining and I have to give credit to the editors at JSLHR because they really helped to focus this paper in in a way that I hope people read it and can say, these are the things that we can do as a field to make clinicians better at what they do. Yeah. They yeah. made it palatable. Yeah,
0: I like that yeah.
2: palatable. And, you know, to speak to that, um, I'll admit, when I first read the paper the first few pages I will put my hands up and say that I do have kind of rose-colored glasses on and when looking at the field because I was very fortunate that I had great dysphagia coursework I had great mentors up until this point so all the clinicians I have worked with have been people who are excellent clinicians, in my opinion, that I aspire to be like. So at first I was on the defensive and I was (laughs) like, hey, you know, like what's really going on here? But the deeper and deeper I read, the more kind of shocked I actually was. Mm. And I was like, wow, okay, there are definitely some areas where we have room for growth as a whole. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And I clearly have my
1: own inherent bias. (laughs) Sure, sure. And sort of contrasting to what your experience has been, a lot of what I read was sort of confirming in an objective way with data, kind of what I've perceived in my previous work. So lots of variability across diagnosing dysphagia, what treatment recommendations, especially when you have patients coming from other facilities, there was just a tremendous amount of variability in Mm -hmm. what you would see. And that's really the, the crux of what's going on here.
0: The very first talk, in the critical thinking and dysphagia management course which was aim 2 of the grant was we called it elucidating inconsistencies in dysphagia management on purpose and in that whole 2 hours we go over the pilot data not this full data the pilot data on only 50 SLPs to talk about why is it that the why is it that so many clinicians are identifying normal physiology as abnormal Why is it that so many people are keen to see that there's no penetration or aspiration, but suggesting a peg could be on the table because there's a risk of aspiration that they never saw? And why is it that even with, this to me was the startling part, that even folks who identify as having board-recognized swallowing specialty, so BRSS, or who have undergone MBS IMP training still are unable to surpass the average. So if the average of people who could identify the primary impairment in a swallow for the easier swallow is 67%, the moderate swallow 6%, and the difficult swallow 6%, folks who were in either BRSS or MBSIMP were not significantly better on the moderate or complex. You'd expect, okay, they're an advanced clinician, they will do better on those difficult ones. Um, and that was not the case. And you know, we can talk about the constraints that are outside of a clinician's knowledge, which is just do you even know how the epiglottis is supposed to invert in general, as well as the institutional constraints that sometimes even the best clinician under these circumstances can't possibly figure these things out unless they
1: have things, you know, like frame by frame, et cetera. What do you guys think about those aspects? I think a lot of what you just explained is the is the reality of it there are all, all of these constraints we have facility demands our caseloads are long we have this many patients to treat we only have this limited amount of time with the radiologist or even after that person's video swallow before the next person comes down so there's a lot of limitations even if you do have the training to use the frame by frame and to look at the different timing measures and you also have the equipment and the without the time to do that it's it's really difficult I so would can i I'm, oh go ahead were you going to say what i was
0: going to say probably okay so no, <laughs> in, in a hypothetical I, world in a yes.
3: hypothetical if well, you had all of those things okay we're asking it from different angles you go okay in a let's play hypothetical mm-hmm. in a hypothetical world say some billionaire donated all of his money to help speech or pathology her money. Or her Yes. <laughs> Holy, that's okay. <laughs> Let's go back to the I even take a breath. You <laughs> just jumped in. And um, said, okay, well now clinicians have all of the equipment that they need. We're going to give them productivity standards that are manageable. We're going to do all these things. Do you think the results of this paper would be drastically different?
2: I genuinely do. I oh, genuinely why? do because... Right now, like, okay, so I feel like, first off, speech pathologists are in a physician-driven model of care Mm -hmm. right now. They have very high turnover rates, and they have, like, a certain... Um, Turnover that they need to achieve really quickly and efficiently a good example of how that's already achieved I automatically think of our voice colleagues, right? Mm -hmm. They have MDF MDVP multi-dimensional voice profiles that they're using in clinic side-by-side with physicians and they're able to get you know Quantifiable objective data at a very high rate and implement it.
0: That's actually not true they have a lot of issues with subjective, perceptual Of agreement. course, but they do have, they do have quantifiable tools that they do use if they
2: have the equipment mm-hmm. that they're able to use in high turnover voice clinics. Mm-hmm. So you do have, there is definitely a pairing between subjective and objective, mm-hmm. but there would be in dysphagia too.
0: So here's the, the difference though. People have been studying and implementing and training voice as its own class for a long time Mm -hmm. right voice is not in my opinion as complicated as dysphagia um and this is me having been trained in the laryngeal and speech speech section under christy ludlow in her lab at the nih and sort of seeing the range of things that people are doing and hearing from people who study voice and saying i would never do dysphagia that's way too complicated that, that mechanism so at the end of the day, it could very well be that it is possible for a clinician to be as um, a, astute in swallowing as you, your colleagues, you're talking about in voice. But at the end of the day, I think your question is: Let's say all of those constraints were off the table. Could today's clinician in dysphagia management identify impairments any better? If they had everything at their everything disposal to do changes,
3: it. Everything else changes, but what stays the same is, is, is just the, the, the knowledge. It's just the okay, So, they so the don't way, have their
0: training knowledge, or the, do you believe
2: the, that yeah, their knowledge same I'm knowledge
3: I've the
0: question
2: as, if they're given the tools, will it improve? The results? tools isn't. That's another way of asking fault. the same question.
0: That's true. What it, right. what I'm saying is the tools. <clears throat> um, so, yes, we did see an increase in people who report 80 to 100% of the time, I do frame-by-frame frame analysis. Mm-hmm. That will take care of the kinds of things where it's just too fast for the human Mm -hmm. eye to see like this particular outcome variable is 100 milliseconds like that's how long Mm -hmm. this is supposed to happen and you just can't see that in that one frame Mm -hmm. so those are people who probably also went frame by frame in the actual survey Mm -hmm. right and found and identified things but they i think that they were some of the outcomes were still at 58 percent accurate
3: well and we can't tease out in this survey the people that reported using frame by frame all of the time were also people that were more likely to have been in a research lab and had PhDs. True. So had 7% um. of the population had a PhD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think we said this in the limitations is that they reported using frame by frame, but they also knew how to use frame by frame and knew more about possibly this is all conjecture, right? About what is a timing deficit? What mm-hmm. is laryngeal vestibule closure reaction time? And what's the underlying, you um, you know, etiology of that, and really, you know, we talk a lot about connecting what you see in video fluoroscopy to a sensory motor pathology, mm-hmm. right? So if you take a, your run-of-the-mill clinician and give them frame-by-frame access, you give them a, unlimited access to imaging, you give them QuickTime, a beautiful new computer, are they going to be better at diagnosing that patient? To answer that question, I need you to characterize
0: a run-of-the-mill clinician. Like, who is he or she?
3: Without a PhD, that doesn't okay. work in a research lab. That works full time clinically. Um, and has had what kind of education? That has had one course in dysphagia I at would the say, most. At the most, I'd say that's the standard. The standard, mm-hmm. um, probably not taught by an expert maybe, maybe not, that did a clinical fellowship in a medical setting that didn't have to do a pediatric school mm-hmm. system placement. Mm-hmm. This is what I envision as a as the majority of the people yeah. that took the survey.
1: And so without that <clears throat> advanced knowledge or training in these timing measures right. or how to use the frame-by-frame, frame, it would be interesting to see what the outcomes would be. I don't know if they would be that much different. I
2: also, yeah, I also am not sure if you know, with timing measures even among researchers, if it's quite there yet, like are we even consistent with each other to suggest that clinicians, like are they gonna use QuickTime 7? Are they gonna use
0: ImageJ? Like what And you know, the mo- what but, are they but gonna so, use, what tools? I think that's a good point. I do think, however, that we if, ne- we, if there was a standard. Sure, no, absolutely. We need to think about whether or not we're rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic right now by talking right. about, you know, these tools in my this whole not anyone in particular but this mm-hmm. whole idea at the end of the day whenever i do courses i usually get this question which is so what then do you think about P? because that was supposed to be the thing right and i always say that dr martin harris did an amazing job at pulling together that tool to get people to stop just looking at aspiration yes yeah. or no and to speak and, the and, same and, and to speak yeah. the same language right. that is huge undertaking it is not her job to make sure that you didn't come to the table with the basic understanding of how swallowing works. I'm not saying you don't get to learn that in that course, but it should be more of the next step. It shouldn't be the very first time that you're seeing this. So the example I usually give is that my sons often are, if they're walking past me at home and I have my laptop open, there's probably video fluoroscopy there, <laughs> and they can point out that something went down the right wrong pipe because a technician can say black stuff went there instead Mm -hmm. of here our patients sometimes go oh that went the wrong way because they're seeing it on floor and somebody pointed it out to them right but does that mean that they understand the swallowing impairment that caused it no if you answer and I'm not I'm probably getting this wrong but if epiglottic inversion options are zero one and two and you can always identify reliably the zero the one or the two and what they should look like but you have no clue what caused the zero one versus the 2 was it the elevation was it the retinoid was it was it the tongue was it the pharynx if you don't understand what makes it invert yeah. you can certainly write zero one or 2 but you cannot then say I'm gonna now target the tongue because that epiglottis never made it to yeah. horizontal and that's the next step. Where do you learn that information? Right. Mm-hmm. Supposedly think, in the classroom. I think the mm-hmm. point there, and that- That's what I mean about the knowledge base. Sure. In terms of being reliable, yes, I get you about, yes, clinicians and researchers aren't 100% reliable on timing, which is why we do inter and intra-rater reliability and we list all these limitations in our paper right. because we can't, and we always say, these data suggest, as right. opposed <laughs> to saying, it has been proven that. <laughs> yeah. Those kinds of things are the case, but in documentation, among SLPs, it's like, swallow initiated the vollecula, therefore thickened liquids, and you're like, no, no, and no. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Well, I think the way to highlight this is that you can train somebody to, somebody can pass the MBS IMP that's not a speech pathologist. Yeah. Right? You train Anyone you could. Mm -hmm. How many
0: people have I trained? I always say from off the street. Like, if you're not an SLP, you're from off the street. (laughs) But, like, I have people, I've had people at Hopkins, because there's no communist department there, Mm -hmm. who applied for a job. They're a biology major, could never find a job, and I trained them to be as, you know, they get reliable even faster than speech pathologists because they have no preconceived Mm -hmm. notions coming in. They're just looking for patterns and they are excellent. Mm -hmm. I train them on timing even faster Mm -hmm. than SLPs who have to untrain from all the clinical things that they've been seeing and then say, no, that is what you're looking for. So I do think that, that your point is well taken that The technician side of things is supposed to be matched by the science and to some degree the art that a clinician sort of brings into interpreting what's happening when those gray splotches go here on the screen versus there what is behind
3: that right and Mm. i and i don't think that bonnie martin harris had any intention that the mbs was meant for interpretation it was more of a vocabulary lesson of Mm -hmm. let's all speak the same language let's you know be able to, when I say epiglottic inversion, that it means the same thing as you are saying epiglottic inversion. Um, But I think the core of this paper in the way that the questions were asked was we didn't, you know, yeah, the first question was identify all the impairments, Mm -hmm. right? But identify the most significant impairment. What is it that actually caused aspiration? So that, you know digs deeper than just, we'll just list everything that's wrong. Because at the end of the day, does that really matter? Yeah. It's really what right. caused somebody to aspirate. I see that a lot with MBS-IMP in note writing of people that are trained is that they just make a list of all the things that are wrong in the swallow and then you skip, like the interpretation piece is gone. And mm-hmm. it's just recommendation. So I read patient had reduced hyalurongeal excursion, reduced epiglottic inversion, reduced pharyngeal constriction, mm-hmm. P, uh premature spillage, period. Patient aspirated, PAS of seven or whatever, recommend diet. And there nowhere in there is any sort of targeted. Targeted, you know, well this of is what caused the bolus yeah. to do this this is the treatment I'm going to apply to that specific thing that caused that. It's just a...
2: No, I definitely agree. There's a huge issue with dysphagia education in a systemic sense and where people are coming from in terms of having somewhat more of a standardized educational system to prepare them for the field, Mm -hmm. and that's definitely reflected in this. Like One of the things that I really noticed, this kind of speaks to what you were saying, is under so for the viewers listeners viewers the listeners out there who don't have this visual there is um a graph for an easy swallowing evaluation an easy mbs and i found that this one had the largest room for growth because You know, when you really look at it, I was saying, okay, well, we know that penetration was a true positive. And then I was like, well, if they didn't pick penetration, then what did they pick? Premature spillage and residue. That is like a very mild impairment. And speaking of Bonnie Martin-Harris, right, Dr. Martin-Harris has had that literature out since the early 2000s. So those are things that really like up to 70% of clinicians shouldn't be quantifying as the primary impairment. And that's a little bit concerning. When it's
1: not even Well, it's, an not, impairment. Even impairment. <laughs> it's not even an yeah. impairment. Yeah, not even an impairment. Yeah. But yeah. I mean yeah. the bolus no. is
0: sitting in the molecular, like, I don't know how I got here, something pushed me here and you're blaming me. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> Exactly. Wow.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Yeah. But it's just like that area to me really stood
0: out as a major room for growth. I appreciate growth. your optimism though, Justine. Like, <laughs> I mean, I I I appreciate that there are people who aren't so through with this field when they see these kind of data. They're going, that's it, that's it. And they're like leaving, you know? And maybe it's because you're like, look, I just started a PhD. (laughs) I have invested time and money. You guys cannot get rid of this field right now. I'm put through the ringer quite now. (laughs) Exactly. 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 So I mean, I appreciate your optimism and I appreciate everyone's optimism. But again, the point here is to highlight, we've already talked about education. We have to talk about, however, that there are way more people who are practicing clinicians than there are actually students in class. So we can Mm. always say there's hope for the future, but what about the patient tomorrow whose airway is being decided upon by a clinician who's focused primarily on aspiration yes or no? What do we do about that? Well, what I like to say is, normal swallowing has been normal ever since like Homo erectus and his big brow ridge. (laughs) Like it's not like they keep changing normal swallowing on me. Yesterday, folks had epiglottises and now they don't have them anymore. People are born without them. Nothing is changing in terms of what is normal. That is the first place to start. If you don't know what normal is, you cannot see an obvious contrast to that. If the first swallows you saw were at the hospital in somebody who may or may not have been normal and you're looking for pathology, your confirmation bias to find a problem is so strong because you have pathologist in your title Mm -hmm. that that's what you're gonna find. You know, If you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big problem in my opinion. (laughs)
3: And that's
1: our analogy, now. Oh, that's you can tell that she actually
3: listens to the podcast. I know, exactly. That, that's yeah. a throwback from Andrew Wattos' podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think it girl. is.
1: Maybe one of your first podcasts, "What Is Normal," yep. or and I in that, I think you guys kind of were talking about. Oh, well, we can't ever have a workshop or a seminar that would say normal swallowing mm-hmm. because nobody would come. And then we ended up. And doing then we had it. one, I and I
0: went to it. Yeah, you know what? That's a good point. That's so, a great point. And yeah. that's actually where I met you, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because, again, it, every time we do this, we get a survey after CTDM and they're like, okay, fine. So you've convinced me I don't know what normal is. Now <laughs> where do I learn it? Well, there are a couple of things. Yes, we do have that course. But importantly, the very first paper, to my knowledge, that pointed out that there's no single place where a swallow can start, be it the piriform mm-hmm. or the oral cavity, was published in 1928 by Penfield. Mm. So it's not like, oh, we need more research on normal. I'm not saying we don't, I'm saying the basic decisions that clinicians are making that are incorrect where they're putting giving unnecessary treatment, those papers are old, old, old. Mm -hmm. It just requires people to actually take it upon themselves to take, if really, if everyone took just one step forward, Mm -hmm. there's not gonna be a dysphagia savior Or anything like that to come down and like wave her or his wand. Yeah, Or and then say, everybody, you know, Asha, it's not Asha's fault for anything. If you don't know what you're doing and you know you're going to see patients in your building tomorrow, you are responsible for figuring it out today. No, I agree 100%. And
2: I also think, you know, to expand on that, I also think that researchers are responsible for taking this kind of information and finding sensitive, pragmatic clinical surrogates that work for clinicians in the real world, whether that's timing that's working with a resource um, that's expedited to meet their needs in clinic, or whether that's a different metric that is equally reliable. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... And I mean, it's important is, to
2: have these foundational studies in the first place to suggest that we need those things. So right.
0: I mean there's responsibility on all sides. Of the course. Researchers making sure that they're actually saying why someone aspirated in their paper. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> even in research papers <laughs> and it Bertrand. is it is outcome variables are things like FOICE or PAS, mm-hmm. which is you know, or E ten. You know, anywhere from patient report to bolus went there and they did or didn't respond. But what was the physiology responsible for it? How do we get? I think the biggest question is how
2: do we get more clinicians on the same page to look at physiology rather than just penetration aspiration? So
0: it's the 12 steps. Yeah. What is the first one? Acceptance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> Which is really, yeah. Harder. I love the yeah. This is, it. It's 12 step It is. This
0: is the very first, this paper is like the very first step. It mm-hmm. is acceptance of where you are as a field, looking yourself yeah. in the mirror without smoke in mirrors, without blinders, mm-hmm. without sunglasses. Your selfie angle is not together (laughs) like you are got to do the full-on first thing in the morning shiny forehead selfie like that's what I look like being able to (laughs) say I don't know yeah yeah saying I don't know and I never knew and I've been faking it and not really making it and if I am I don't know if my parent my patients are making it Mm -hmm. and a second more kind of external
2: factor too is I can't help but think about how much insurance pack impacts these results.
0: Oh, 100%. That's a good point. Um, you know, when, on. We about, so yeah, when we talk about
2: yeah, when we talk about the laundry list of impairments, you know, why do clinicians from a logistics standpoint have this laundry list? It's because they are getting pushback every day from insurance well, maybe, maybe it's because, maybe they're not, I don't know. But I know that there are many clinicians who get pushback on patients who do need treatment maybe they don't maybe they feel that they do we mm-hmm. could that's up for debate mm-hmm. but you know theoretically if a patient does genuinely need treatment and they're still receiving pushback how much of that is just a continued reinforcement of a behavior i need to just list impairment after yeah. impairment after yeah. impairment but, to get my patient but with but it a is need.
0: possible to have one impairment that is so severe that it's the only one that matters. Like well, as, as, word, right? well, well, the thing is, in this first patient, this person had a very long swallow onset delay, mm-hmm. very long. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, swallow initiated piriform. I mean, some of those swallows were like 20. How long was that delay? 20, 25 seconds. 25 second delay. Second? They pushed the bolus back something. and sat for 25 yes. seconds.
3: 27, 27. Oh my goodness. How, how did, Don't you dream how about these that numbers? That? <laughs> Twenty-seven point zero. That's a twenty-seven point zero,
0: <laughs> and yet still only sixty-seven percent of people mm. identify that as a primary impairment. Mm. Now that's a long delay, and yes, this person did, you know, did not have major aberrant bolus flow because of it. I still think that it is important to make sure that um, we we able we're able to document with intention such that we can we have the skills as speech pathologists hopefully to identify that this is a significant impairment but still be right that it's only the only one there. You know what I mean? So Ben, you're being unethical by saying that what if our neurologist says, "Oh, she has hypertension, high blood pressure and I didn't."
1: Right,
0: well, we right. want to make sure we get your money. No, I want you to I want you to this is my health on the line, not your billing,
2: mm-hmm. right? So in another
0: field that would be unethical.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think playing a role in the clinician's perspective aside from the insurance issues too are doctors, nurses, families, patients, they they look at us as the people who tell them what they can and can't eat. And so that's kind of what we're beholden to. And instead of why is this happening? The physician's not always asking us that. The nurses aren't asking us that. The patients might not even be asking. They just want mm-hmm. to know if they can eat or drink. And if they can't eat and drink what they want, then then they're upset and then they're confused because different speech pathologists then give them different reasons as and to what why. can you
3: imagine in physical mm-hmm. therapy if the patients look at the physical therapist and just say, just tell me, can I walk or can I not walk?
0: Yeah. That, Am I going to be bedridden?
3: Right. Or not. And then it was like, you know, so I think it's it's our job to educate that what we're, our job is, is as rehabilitation specialist Mm -hmm. is to rehabilitate the physiology after we figure out the pathology after we figure out what is actually wrong it's Mm -hmm. the same thing as a physical therapist you know where their job is to hone in on what is making you not be able to walk accurately and I'm going to treat that thing not well well let's have them do you know leg presses and (laughs) bicep curls and because why not it can't hurt right let's have them do a whole program and then you're missing the key aspect mm-hmm. of what is causing the impairment. So, and who's responsible for that? Right. That's in what my I was opinion, just gonna
0: say. the SLPs who <clears throat> came before us <clears throat> are the ones who have been setting these rules. They up. Sort of like dug us into this exactly. hole. Exactly. And, it's and in to order to be the person to say no, that's not how we work. You have to do one of two things. One is yes, I used to do this and I was wrong. Two, my whole field has has been doing this and I'm wrong, or it could be that you know, we actually don't know what we're doing, mm-hmm. which is also a possibility, right? So who wants to admit that we right. don't know what we're doing? Yeah. And
2: I I feel like this may get me pegged as the optimism again. <laughs> which which we, do. Not we need that things. from time to
3: time. <laughs> I've gone through stages <laughs> with this paper of ups and downs of optimism and yeah. really deep pessimism. So optimistic, <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So um you know just to speak again to like identifying these things, you know, one of the things that made me optimistic when looking at this is when you looked at the complex swallow that they evaluated, and you know that the impairments that were true positives were based on timing metrics. Well, I said, well, what else were they picking? What else were clinicians picking? Mm -hmm. And they weren't what I'll affectionately, I guess, referred to as like hotspot regions. So, you know, if (laughs) if they saw that there was an issue with timing of laryngeal vestibule closure, they perceived that as a visual reflection of amount. And there was more people who chose that. And the same thing for UES dissension, they saw size or amount. So that kind of data, I think, is very helpful for us to see like, what is the next step, can we validate in a certain way, visually, well, there's some forms of these things that you can validate, but how can we help clinicians expand on what they are doing right, potentially? Well,
0: you know, there's research suggesting that, well, you know, we've, we've already talked about the idea of where your swallow should start and mm-hmm. that your swallow can start as deep as the piriform and be normal. Let's talk about that. That's a big misconception. But there's also a study by Danielle Braitz and Sonia Malfenter, I believe, is one of the authors on this. Um, and... It actually got an award at DRS last year and just got published in Dysphagia showing that when clinicians did, there were two subjective ratings and one objective rating. Mm-hmm. One was palpation, digital pal- palpation of the larynx to see if there was adequate hyolaryngeal excursion. The other was subjectively just looking at fluoro because some people think that because it's fluoro, it's objective. But we can look all at the same dress and have completely different mm-hmm. opinions like hello is it white and gold or is it blue and black, right? right? Yeah, <laughs> so it. if you're looking at floral, they said, does that look like adequate high laryngeal elevation? And mm-hmm. then they went in and did the actual metrics in millimeters, how much actual movement happened. And clinicians weren't on board mm-hmm. with the actual metrics. And if you know that the general range of high elevation, or at least laryngeal elevation is between five millimeters and 25, you have to know that some people normally have very little movement. So you can't possibly say it's not enough unless it is not hitting a target that matters. What is the point of laryngeal movement is what we should be saying, not is it enough, yes or no, and then walk off. Are you getting UAS traction? Are you getting the larynx close enough to the hyoid bone so that we can get some coverage with the epiglottis? Are you getting the the epiglottis closest to the back of the tongue so it can push it to horizontal? If those things are happening and someone has little movement, it's fine. Mm -hmm. That's like, Justine, you're short like me. If there's a tall lady and she goes, you're a pathology because you need more steps to get from your car to the building, you're like, but I'm functional. (laughs) Do I need to get in the wheelchair now? Yeah, I mean, it's your normal and you are functional with taking, uh, you have a a small or shorter stride length than she does. Yeah. It speaks to the critical Mm -hmm. importance of um, baseline. That was for my oh, um oh, okay. no, no. sure come on. You gotta <laughs> Yeah, we on. gotta keep <laughs>
2: doing it. Um, yeah, I think it speaks to the critical importance of also just having baseline studies. Mm-hmm. Like that could be a huge immediate step for patients who have and clinicians who have objective flora right now.
3: I hate to be the person to rain in the parade, but I wanna you had mentioned, you know, the optimism with this <laughs> yeah. with this data here in that saying, well, Okay, there was an impairment with the laryngeal vestibule. There was a UES impairment, and they got close. You know, they they did say no <laughs> in that area, but, but remember, in the remember, remember, it's
0: so small that everything's in the region, yeah, right? I, well,
3: I think the important piece from this question, where question was, was identify all the impairments. And what I see when I look at this graph is that when there was somebody in this, so in this patient, it was the complex patient. There was pretty obvious aspiration, although. Not that obvious. Well, 95% said that there was aspiration. And what happened in this patient is that people clicked 10 plus impairments oh, really? so yeah it's you know oh it's easy to say like well 60-70% said that it was impaired oh, okay. well they also said everything else was oh. impaired yeah. so the they clicked they, they the were line. like oh it's <laughs> really push bad it. I mean, aspiration click this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong, this is wrong. This you is can't wrong. say I'm wrong I forgot one of yeah. them right yeah, yeah. One exactly one it's right. like if right. someone
0: does a multiple choice and everything is every answer is all of the above because somewhere above is the it's right answer it still doesn't show
3: they know what they're talking about so if you go to the next graph which is said well tell me what is the primary impairment look at that same graph right where it's people it's one percent for pretty much everything mm-hmm. every single impairment was was clicked
2: yeah and it's funny because I actually you know I thought to myself like how much of a component did clinicians have of self-doubt when they were filling I'm this waiting. out mm-hmm. that they needed to maybe overcompensate yeah. Click a yeah. lot. but here's what I think
0: happened you know like if you have been to let's say a jelly a candy store and you're like there's
1: yeah, I, didn't I, I, didn't <laughs> I didn't even get it out. I didn't even get it out. I know.
0: So let's say you're like you only had like you only do there was like two jelly bean types and you go to jelly beans you are like, holy frick, there's like peanut butter jelly bean flavor, so you just start taking everything. I think we may have introduced categories that people had never even heard of and they're like, Well for crying out loud I'm gonna click that one too. It could be it a could problem. Be. Yeah, we no. may have we may have induced more clicking because we gave them more things that they had
1: never heard of before, which yeah. is probably also why so many treatment options were clicked.
3: Oh, let's talk yeah. about. Oh. Treatment. Well, <laughs> I just I have to say one thing about this because you know every time I read this paper, I a new a new piece of data kind of strikes me. Of does, like, does, it, does the so paper still speak, much, speak to
0: you? It, this, the paper still speaks <laughs> to the, the, speak, <laughs> the data are speaking to you. But there was somebody
3: on Twitter that read the paper and tweeted us and made a comment that I just thought was really profound that I wish I would have spent more time on in the discussion of this. And he said, his name is Tom Richards, I'm not sure where he's from, but he said, you know, what's really interesting is that in all of these, there was always an option to say, Something is wrong, but I don't know what it is. And it was never collected. Zero really? percent in, in patient yeah. one. One yeah. percent um, in patient two and one percent in patient three. Do you remember mm-hmm. when we talked about having that as an option?
0: Yeah. I remember exactly where we were. And I was like, we have to give an out for people who are like, I genuinely don't know. Don't know. And I was
3: giving them an out yeah. to say, look, there's sh- shit's happening. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. And that adding that... Ch- if we didn't add that, this paper i don't think would have the validity that it does True. because people could say, "Well, you made them have to pick something, yeah, yeah. but people had the op people had the out to say, "I, I just don't know, don't know. Mm. and the fact um, that nobody said that, I think just speaks to how it is in practice yeah. is that. When people are looking at their patient and they don't really know what's going on, they still feel the need to say, well, i got to say something. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that's Freakonomics has a podcast where
0: they show the hardest words for human beings to say is not, I love you, it's, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a human phenomenon, but it is impacted or impounded by the fact that we are already feeling like imposters. We don't have a home. In yeah. the school system, speech pathologists aren't inherently belonging there like teachers and principals in the hospital doctors and nurses right Mm -hmm. we're always auxiliary Mm -hmm. so just by virtue of coming in and being auxiliary that's an issue on top of that you weren't trained to be there you had no medical training if you're lucky you had a two credit hour medical slp class on top of a dysphagia class that's your most trained person Mm -hmm. so then you show up and you are supposed to be the swallowing expert so you better start tap dancing really fast and people tap dance all over people's airways basically
2: yeah
1: it's
0: what these data are showing
2: do you think that the outcome would have been different of the study if there were more primary impairments that weren't timing based? Like I when I read the title and after I read the paper, I was like, perhaps this should be changed like range of to, motion
0: um, when identifying timing impairments? Well, keep in mind, we can only say what floral can do. We can't talk about pressure. We can't talk about, um, think, we can talk about range of motion. I believe we had, didn't we have range of motion stuff in there? Like
3: excursion and that kind of thing? Well, all, yeah, some people did have impairments in subjective components, but all of the primary impairments were impairments in timing. So Yeah, and we did that because that
0: was the only way that we could say this is the truth. Objective. I won't say truth. This is something <laughs> that we can say based on 14 papers, the range is between this, Period in that period. Do so you feel like you Otherwise, were
2: pigeonholed into doing not pigeonholed? It into
0: that because keep in mind, I don't think so. Because we could have done range of motion, but then what if they said, "Yes, I believe there's a
3: problem, but I can't tell you how many millimeters." I mean, yeah, that's I, hard I, to say. I, Whereas I with agree. timing, you can do you it can, for yeah. sure. So I think it's um, so I think it's a double edged sword. So yeah. on one end, somebody could say, "Well, all these impairments were timing," and that puts a clinician at a disadvantage because timing is not something that we're more accurately trained in, or mm-hmm. even talked about in. That's not true. People talk education. about what's late all the time. No, but, but even though it's not. Under LV, the, no, I second. will say like under the second. LVC reaction <laughs> time is mm-hmm. is a impairment that is not trained as often, and the evidence of that is take it the MBsIMP has absolutely no timing parameters in it, right? So you could make the argument that, um, you know, this is a type of impairment that's less. Appreciated, mm-hmm. but I would come back and say there are studies that show that in neurologic patients, timing impairments are the most prevalent and problematic. And problematic impairments. So in stroke patients, there's um, a lot of studies by Park and Powers. by Powers mm-hmm. that show that delayed closure and um, uh, decreased duration of closure of the laryngeal vestibule is one of the absolute most primary impairments in these populations. So I would flip it the other way and say, but these are really the issues that are wrong with our patients. And it highlights uh, in well, what, one
2: population of our patients. For sure. Right? Well,
0: neuro- neurogenic dysphagia yeah. is pretty big. Uh,
3: yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But and you Certainly, certainly if you're someone looking at head and neck cancer, if you someone's got a 27-second delay in swallow onset, I don't, I don't think you're going to be like, well, well, they've got all their stuff. Like, I've yeah. never seen this person with the epiglottis and their tongue's there. I, I can't figure out what the problem is. And right? I think, like,
2: you know, to clarify, I feel like for me when I'm thinking about timing metrics, I'm thinking about them under the second. No, 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 I, no. I know, but it know includes, like, sure. a delay, but I think oh, yeah. that 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 mm-hmm. is something to address like when we're talking about sure. timing. Because sure. I think clinicians can visually say, you know, that looks delayed. Like a I mean, delayed that's, onset. That,
0: well that's the only visual is also includes metrics though.
2: Yeah, it does. You include mean subjectively? Metrics you mean subjectively like for example mm-hmm. the easy swallow had a 27 second delay you said right, yeah. mm-hmm. right? like that is somebody something you could tell sure you don't you, a you need a frame by frame yeah by you don't need board. frame yeah
3: I exactly. right. but swallowing you know in general happens within a second so everything course, that we're exactly. looking at is yep. within this very very small you know timing window so i don't think that i think that's if you're going to practice in dysphagia management, that is a reality that you have to accept that mm-hmm. everything that you look at is happening quickly, and multi and happening at the same
0: time, and many things at the, the same, same time. time. Right. You know, we're not talking about an eye blink here, where yeah. there's one. You know, a bottom and a top lip doing their thing. We're talking about a lot of things happening. Yeah,
3: yeah I think that um, there are other impairments in swallowing that we could look at and investigate and look at clinician accuracy. I personally believe that the results wouldn't be that different. That. So
0: I'm going to liken this next thing to um, <laughs> whenever
3: you're, go for it.
0: Her facial I expression. Know. I know. In for it. <laughs> I, know, I know I hear a bell and I just come up with an analogy. <laughs> I'm walking through the metro. And it's like, <laughs> so, thing, so, I'm like, what? so uh, have you heard about the one-to-one relationship? between? <laughs> like, why why am I coming up with analogies? I heard a bell. It's like Pavlov's, you know, <laughs> operant conditioning. Um, okay. So whenever you are reading a paper, and you read the introduction okay sounds like a good reason to write this paper you read the methods and you're like what the hell these methods are crap and then you get to the point with the results you're like these results are crap and then you're like what's the point reading the discussion because there, it doesn't matter what you say at this point it doesn't matter how you talk you know explain away your results because the methods were horrible right when we talk about treatment it doesn't even matter it doesn't matter it does matter there were, that there were 19 to 21 different varieties of treatments that came up for a single swallow, right? But of course there were, because there were 19 to 20 different impairments identified. If there is no unification on the problem, yep. there's not gonna be unification mm-hmm. on the treatment of the problem. I agree. So to talk about therapy is just like, if I ask, again, people what the physiologic rationale is for a chin tuck, they will talk about what well, we want the bulls to, to, to dwell here and give time for so-and-so, that's that may or may not be a physiologic rationale that's just again chasing the waterfall or like slowing right. down the waterfall but still the physiology behind that is never explained so that's the frustrating part about the treatment part by the time we got there it was just like ah whatever, like, <laughs> whatever. we did who cares. like of yeah. course it sucks you know you throw a bunch of crap into the pot and your dish is horrible well of course it is you just threw stuff in the pot and when you should have done that in the first yeah. place
3: I think you know to summarize the way that patients are approached in clinical practice, and this is not me pointing the finger and looking down, this is from being there myself, is, well, let's throw shit at the wall and see what sticks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I don't know exactly what's wrong. We have all these treatments, I'm gonna have you do all of them, and somewhere they're gonna match up, right? And the patient improves, and that reinforces, or they don't. Because the improvement
0: metric is diet upgrade, which you decided anyway, which you downgraded, not based on imaging, so of course we might as well upgrade based on your gut anyway, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, wait, the optimist. Yeah. <laughs> Your face right now is like, you guys are really raining on my face. What is it, Justine? Say words. Say no, words. No,
2: I mean, I'm just smiling because I can't help but think of, like, this alternate speech pathology universe that will probably never come to fruition. But naturally, when I read about this, I kind of thought of our otolaryngology colleagues, right? You may have a ENT who goes in, scopes a patient, says, you know, there seems to be a firm uh, mass at midline of the base of tongue, but they don't say right there in clinic, like, I'm going to take a specimen, I'm going to put it um, under the microscope, get a whole histology report and decide your treatment plan, like right now. They say, I'm going to send it Mm -hmm. to the lab in the back of the hospital Mm -hmm. and get a lot more information. And I kind of just thought about this world where, like, are we going to have a lab in the back of hospitals, where we, because we cannot keep up with the physician model of care, of uh, this is the pace
0: that we're working. We yeah. won't get it until we agree that it's necessary. We still are on step one of acceptance. We can't be thinking about ways to fix a problem that we don't all agree is there. I have thought about that. I was like, we actually, just like radiologists, sit down and can build exactly. and stare at these right. images because they want to know, is this an organ that's healthy that should stay in the body? Or is this a tumor that should come out? I mean, they're making some serious decisions, as are yeah. we. But if we keep saying, acting like we're magicians who like on the spot, Susie, who can just be like, boom, 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 boom. They're not going to give us anything because we're not struggling. Yeah. We're not struggling their opinion. Squeaky wheels get oiled. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so if we're not a squeaky wheel, you know, if you only have one squeaky wheel, that was you. <laughs> yes, that's right. And if you and if you are the only squeaky wheel, you're not loud enough you have to actually have agreement among the other SLPs that we don't know what we're doing. That's a hard thing to say. Yeah, and how you get by that on. I'm I don't know what I'm doing, and therefore, and, and I never did, and there's no one who could. It's not me. It's not like I just don't have x-ray vision. It's like nobody does, in the same way that they move from phrenology to MRIs. They don't feel on bumps of the head anymore to figure out if someone had a stroke. They actually look in the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sorry, really quickly, the other thing that people keep saying is, well, are there any studies showing that? I'm like, oh, let yeah. me just tell you this. When Any they were showing. showing that you don't, you need imaging and that it's better, it's better than guessing about laryngeal or UAS movement at the bedside, I always say, gosh, you know, when they figured out that they could see inside the brain, nobody was hollering for the studies to show that palp- <laughs> palpating the scalp was as good because that's all we have. They were like, frick, let's get yeah. one of these in every hospital. And until then, we're sending them to you because you guys can tell us what's going on. And then they
2: said, also, let's get the tools to really evaluate these well and have the metrics right. to draw. You can't line even be a stroke, a
0: comprehensive stroke center with a higher level of imaging. It's not any imaging. It's a certain kind of imaging at the very least that has to happen before you can be a comprehensive stroke. You can't even diagnose stroke without imaging. So if we can't agree on that, it's just not going to happen.
3: Right. I think what makes this difficult is that um, what ends up happening a lot of times, that's you see a patient, and sometimes patients get better for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the therapist. Yeah. Spontaneous recovery mm-hmm. is huge.
0: They weren't problematic in the first place. They didn't have a disorder. in the
3: first <laughs> place, or improvement is being measured by diet outcomes. They were NPO, and now I put them on a regular diet because they're not coughing, you know? Yeah. And so what ends up happening, and I love when I see this, it makes me laugh, is that when patients get better, clinicians are very quick to attribute it to the therapy. Right, And they tell patients, and I'm not saying this is wrong because it's not right or wrong, right? It's that
0: you don't know.
3: You don't know. You don't know, but it's so easy to be like, oh, you worked so hard doing your therapy for the past two months and now your swallowing is better. Versus patients who don't get better, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, it's because of your diagnosis, or it's because of your situation, it's, it's all these other or factors. Or you're not
0: adhering, right? Or you're not adhering. But doesn't it go back or, to Justine's whole point about if you're driven by the things that keep you in that position, be it saying what a diet's going to be, or insurance, if insurance is your bottom line that you have to say there's improvement to even keep this patient, to keep your productivity, then, of course, that's your natural thing that you say. Right. I mean, and how many people are going to say to a patient, you got better, and I have no clue whether it had anything to do with what I was doing. Right. Nobody. So right. it's self And you don't know that it doesn't. And we don't either. know that it doesn't. Right. So why not give myself credit since I'm in a hospital that doesn't love me anyway? I might as well give myself <laughs> a pat on the back.
3: Who's going to say no? Who's right? going to say no? And sometimes when you throw shit at the wall, sometimes something it's does six. stick. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's a up, you know? And it's like, you just don't, we don't know. And I think that... That reality isn't going to change because um, you know you can't control for all those factors with your patients, right? But what we can do is be better at isolating what the problem actually is and targeting that problem so that when we throw shit at the wall, yeah, we have a target. <laughs> we're right? throwing the right, we're sure. throwing, <laughs> we're throwing a spaghetti at the right wall, at the right <laughs> wall. Get yeah. the wall right. We <laughs> have <laughs> a target at least, you know, and sometimes sometimes we're not going to hit that target but at least if we are all aiming at the same thing our chances of improving or make you know hitting the hitting the mark are going to be so much better it'd be like if we had a dartboard that had no center and it was just like the, the the target is there somewhere but you don't know where it is so you're just like well i'm just going to keep throwing the dart it. It, it it didn't hit
0: the floor how about that yeah. yeah
3: but when you have a target it's like now i know where to focus and yeah. i think that in our practices. We don't know where the focus is. You know what's interesting mm-hmm. is um,
0: at the last ETDM, Ed Bice had this analogy, and I was like, I said, Ed, I'm stealing this. And he was talking about patients for biofeedback, but it makes sense for clinicians too, where he was talking about what would it be like if you were a pianist who's been training for decades, but you could never hear the piano. You were training and training, and you're like, oh, I'm getting better. My fingers are moving faster, blah, 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 blah. But you sound like shit, right? (laughs) Like, then what? And then you get feedback of what it actually is. And you were like, all of my metrics for improvement were jack crap. To me, that's what this paper is kind of like. It's like, we're getting more notoriety. We are, you know, getting more prevalent in the hospital. We're making gains. And hey, you go to Ash. you're going to hear the big opening ceremony, but how SLPs are better, better, better. But could it be that we're not hearing the instrument we're playing yeah, and mm-hmm. somebody's actually trying to play to us, but we're blocking our ears like, no, 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 no. I've been doing this for 20 years, which could mean you have 20 years of repeating year one over and over again. You yeah. don't have 20 years of new experience. You've just been doing the same thing for, for 20 different years, the same year one, 20 times. Yeah. And that's why you sound like shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, yeah. Justine, we need you for some optimism. because We, can, <laughs> we cannot end on, and that's why you sound yeah, like shit. <laughs> um, you know
2: what? I just think my overall takeaways from this is that, of course, there's variability amongst clinicians. Mm-hmm. Each clinician has a total, like, at the end of the day, we're humans working with humans. That's inherently variable, and that's okay. Um, I think we do have, obviously, a lot of room for growth. But I think um, moving forward, it's about giving clinicians resources, free resources, which you already do, which is excellent, Um, and really having more clinicians increase awareness of things. Like I'm not convinced that all clinicians even realize yet that premature spillage is not a deficit
0: mm-hmm. for,
2: pe- for yeah. people
0: yeah. like I don't I don't know why you, you they just lose some minds yeah
2: like hopefully initiatives like this and advocacy will help but I think every clinician has to be an advocate for themselves clinicians need to be advocates for others mm-hmm. And they need to
0: give they need to give other people and themselves room for failure so they can grow. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so if you don't know something you have to say I don't know what that is and the only way you're going to learn it is by opening your mouth and saying let's talk about this. Can you teach me?
2: Yeah, and I think yeah. it also speaks to the importance of translational research like, you know, these having all this data about timing at the level of the millisecond is great, but if we don't start working with some IT people to figure out how we can expedite clinicians' ability to measure timing in Mm -hmm. the real world today, how can we make the biggest impact now, then I don't know how meaningful knowing this is going to be. Well, I think
3: it's pretty accepted that variability in treatment is okay. So for example, when you get diagnosed with some sort of cancer, right, there are different oncologists, different radiation oncologists, different surgeons that may have different opinions about how to treat that, but at least they're all talking about the same disorder. Yeah. They're not like, they're not like, uh,
0: I don't think you have a tumor that guys, you have a tumor the size of grapefruit and the other guy's like, that's your spleen. Like that's, (laughs) that's where we are right now. No, no, That's that's (laughs) normal.
3: Yeah. So I think, I think where we can't even get to treatment until we all agree on what is impaired and then allow variability in treatment is fine. And I'm okay with that. As long as it had it makes sense from a physiologic mm-hmm. standpoint and you know well i think this treatment works and here's why and somebody else says well i would take this approach and this is the you know physiologic reason why but until we can come to this to a consensus about um the diagnosis of what's impaired i think that talks of treatment are just we're not there yet
1: yeah
2: yeah like i may get attacked for this i feel like but i do feel like clinicians I, th- I think it should be a standard set by ASHA that if you are treating dysphagia patients, you should have a, n- a number of up-to-date dysphagia CEUs under your, bait, under your belt each year. But here's keep the up thing with, with like that. Things. One
0: is ASHA have, cannot enforce that rule. You, we, ASHA can say, all, look, there's jaywalking rules. They are on the books. There's mm-hmm. anal sex rules. On the books, who's enforcing these things? <laughs> Just because you have a rule on the book, it doesn't mean that there are any the the uh, the governing body has the teeth to actually force you to implement it. They have it in a gross way to say, did you get any CUs, mm-hmm. any CEUs? And yes, they can enforce that. But then, if you go to the uh, smaller level, is they can't confirm that you even listened while yeah. you were there. So you can That's have true. people, you can have people. We've had people in our in our in our talks where they have their arms folded, and their evaluation is like. You guys are condescending and I didn't learn anything because you made me feel bad the whole time.
3: And there's somebody else who's like, oh my God, I'm totally changing
0: my whole perspective. That's
3: or I mean I like doing. you I mean, I could go and take thirty hours of dysphagia CEUs on stuff that I already know mm-hmm. but are quick and easy. And they're all so high level. Yeah. And we sh- I mean and we showed in the survey that you know, certain trainings or certain even board <laughs> certification isn't what is helping with your Good point. ability to Good point. diagnose and interpret and make these decisions? Because
0: requires that you go a step above in swallowing specific training that are considered to be elevated versus just like sending in you know a, a thing. I read a paper and this is my my summary of yeah. the abstract kind of thing.
3: And that's saying it's useless. I think no. it's, it's it's a the board certification is is great and I think it's you know really pushing our field forward and recognizing that we do need to have a specialization, but. It's not like getting that certification means like oh well now I am a swallowing expert and I know everything. It's mm-hmm. no, nobody ever knows. But you know, know what? I
0: still think that this is this is just like you're grown, like eighty year old, and you're trying to go back and do gymnast stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like the problem is you got to get people when they're four years old or five years old and force. Period, force, you know. force their bodies into these obscure positions. And the students, in my opinion, across the board that we're dealing with are not the students that are going to med school. Many of them used to be med students. Many of them used to be biomedical engineers <laughs> or students. And I'm not saying they switched because it was easier, but it, they would often come into the program and say, I didn't switch because it was easier, but goddamn, this is much easier. Yeah. This is spoon-feeding. And,
3: and disappointed by it.
0: Disappointed by it. So the thing is that if... We, if we're expecting, and there's always gonna be someone's like, I had a rigorous time. Okay, thanks, Susie. Sit down. Thanks, thanks, thanks for your rigorous yeah. time. What does that mean? One homecoming yeah. you didn't get totally trashed because there was an exam, like one yeah. homecoming you missed out. I'm talking about med students shut their life down for four years. Yeah. And then we're talking about no one shuts their life down for two years to be a speech pathologist because mm-hmm. they need to cram this information in their head because they know they're never gonna stop learning because it's just the beginning, then they specialize afterward.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah we jump straight to specialization. We jump
0: straight to specialization and there's no general stuff in the undergrad we know is not the case. I really think the undergrad period should be far more rigorous to get, and we should not let everybody and their grandmother in. No. And That should be the med school. It really should be. It really like the, should be the med school. And grad school is the specialization. It, exactly. in medical model. Exactly. And when you're dealing with people who are that um, that um, used to pain and pressure, and this is the way that the situation mm-hmm. is, someone who's been, like, not hanging out with their friends because they have to go to practice and they are serious. hmm then you expect that they will continue to have high levels of learning and competence and this need to be the best in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, we should have more SLPs, the bottleneck is the clinical experience. Maybe we don't need more, maybe we need better, fewer people who can really infiltrate and practice at the top of their license, mm-hmm. as opposed to more people who are just going to still have these mythical views of what they can hear. They can hear residue yeah. in the molecular with a stethoscope, which I've heard not long ago. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I need to come to more of these talks. Are Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like.
1: So the bigger question is, I guess, because that's such a, it's 100% all true. All of these changes need to happen. How do we make these changes happen? I mean, well, you've got again, programs. Again, and... it's not, it's
0: everybody. first step is acceptance. Yeah. acceptance yeah. I swear to God, if you cannot describe swallowing physiology to a deep enough level, and you are not going to know what's deep, right? The thing is, who's <laughs> going to tell you what what is really a real understanding? You know, you say, like,
3: we maybe we need less people, right? Well, we've kind of shown that in that... Look how much overdiagnosis that there was so, in this paper. So yes. much overdiagnosis yeah. and I see Good this point. in practice. Mm-hmm. Tell me if you guys have seen this before that when you have more clinicians, your caseload is bigger. Everybody has say like, oh, you have these floors, you have these floors, or you have this population. When you have eight clinicians on staff, all of a sudden your caseload is 120 people. Because they're finding the people, are to keeping people to problem. People. They yeah. don't <laughs> let them go. If you discharge your whole caseload, you don't have patients to see, but think about on holidays, when you have three clinicians manning the whole hospital for two weeks, all of a sudden the caseload's 40 people, because those 40 people are the people that need to You're be so treated right. and seen, and Always everybody seen. else, when you have... 20 evaluations, you're like, you're, you're normal, you're fine, you're out, you're out, <laughs> yeah. right. discharge, discharge, yeah. discharge. You clean up, you joke about it when everybody you do. comes we back, know. you're like, all man, cleaned I cleaned house. up the caseload. <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah, because all those people didn't need to be there. Yeah. And now you have the 20 people that are like, this person had a brain stem stroke, they have dysphagia, they need a lot of therapy, I would never discharge that patient. Mm. But how many people you kept on caseload they are like, have a UTI, they're in the hospital that you're treating, for a swallowing problem, that's not a swallowing problem, it's a medical mm-hmm. problem. They need antibiotics and yeah. then their swallowing's gonna be fine. Get them off your caseload. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You and know, exactly. to be able it, to say that to a physician as yeah. well. Like that's to
1: have the confidence and the knowledge yeah. base to say that. Exactly. Is hard yeah, for I agree. People. Good yeah. point.
2: Yeah, swallowing care is multidisciplinary. Like if your patient is having a metabolic problem, a problem that is pharmacology related, like is you that, need to be able to identify mm. that. And, and get not just them put them on your them the You're topo.
3: not, yeah. <laughs> <Even> or <before laughs> you, <they can laughs> plunge on. They want to keep, you know, they, it makes you feel important that you're, you know, managing this patient. And then they get better. It's the UTIs yeah, that right, get, better get better. And you're like, God, oh, that swallowing therapy yes, was on point. That's exactly what it's like when you get your first job.
0: Now you need this better car. And you need that iPhone X before you're like I've got a bus ticket right now because that's what I got and you that's it was a dream to have those things now you need a car like oh my god I'm not taking the bus but yeah. it's the same ideas
1: oh I was just gonna say I think to um keeping the patients on caseload because you feel like you're making a difference maybe they really do or they're scared that yeah. they'll let the patient go and something mm-hmm. terrible yeah. will happen and it's gonna fall on the for FLP. sure. But I think of it when as, like, has
0: anything ever fallen on any FLP in life? Unless right. they swallow their dentures. And I have seen people actually post videos of their own patient with um. dentures in their pharynx for a month. Like, guys, isn't this strange how that had happened? Yeah. <laughs> like,
3: <laughs> what on earth?
0: Yeah. Why
3: aren't you on the... <laughs> I, I think, you know, I just have to make a, a closing analogy, which is that I what we fear... I, I like
0: floor. how you're foreshadowing we need to stop. It's no. yeah. closing, yeah. it's like a <laughs> benediction. <laughs> benediction. But
3: this just hit me. What we fear going to the mechanic is what we do to our patients. So when you go to the mechanic, everybody always says like, I don't want to bring my car in because they're going to find 20 other things that are Mm. wrong with it. This is wrong. I just want to take my car in. I want them to do my oil change. (laughs) I know it's just the oil change that I need and I'm scared they're going to look around and find everything else. And that happens sometimes. You take your car and Mm. you picture a mechanic being like, okay, I know they're here for the oil change, but
0: (laughs) maybe even things that don't aren't really needed and they like, and they make you feel like you can't be safe on the highway yes yeah. right like
3: oh well, you're you know the alignment so could be adjusted sure. here your tread is is 0.001 you know, <laughs> know. you're in down. the yellow which means it's going to take you five oh. car lengths to stop oh in the rain i'm yeah. like look, 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 i am not drive in the rain and you leave, <laughs> okay and you leave like oh my god should i be driving my car i shouldn't even be driving my car but we do this to our patients mm-hmm. yeah i know except they, wrong, wait wait wrong. they yeah. actually
0: looked under the hood though yeah, The equivalent of that is a mechanic basically seeing oil under your car and saying, based on seeing this oil on your car, these five things are okay. wrong with Our the mechanism that I never saw. For right? sure. So we're doing it even in a worse situation. We yeah. never pop the hood. They at least pop the hood.
2: Yeah. For sure. But I think that also, like, you know, this shouldn't deter patient, deter clinicians. This should empower
3: clinicians.
1: I, but that's the whole <laughs> yeah. yeah. thing. Optimism all, yes. day. No. all The problem day. is that it this... won't
3: deter clinicians is that clinicians are going to look at this and say, like, not me. Like, I'm good. I don't I'm think so i think there
0: are some clinicians who've been waiting for this to bring it into their group i've already gotten some messages who are going to say we're going to look at this together and try to see There are going to be definitely some who are like oh i that wouldn't be me because i'm brss i'm msip i got all my acronyms and i'm saying
3: but there's going to be other people (laughs) who are just like actually this is a good reason for us to talk yeah it's very eye-opening it opens the dialogue Mm -hmm. you know where it's not hey you 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 uh, we're all treating this really badly. It's like, well, this is what this paper this says. You know, it's, we're giving people an out to to talk about it. Yeah, and loose. I think
2: even like discrepancy meetings amongst your own team are so important. Like, let's all just look at this swallow. What do mm-hmm. we all think? Mm-hmm. Why are we not right. consistent with each other?
3: Right. Just yeah. like
0: small little things like that can make it difference. a difference. That's it. So that's a good closing mm-hmm. suggestion, which is now let's open the dialogue and talk. Mm-hmm. You know, you may or may not accept it yet. Maybe you're not in acceptance, but are you at least willing to dialogue about your patience with other people? Because if you aren't even willing mm-hmm. to show people what you're doing, that means you're hiding something, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If you can't open your notes up or your florals up to people or you don't want to say to someone else, like there's always somebody in a meeting who says, I'm so glad you said that because I work with people who suck. And I'm like, did you say anything to them? They're like no and also there is a way to say something and
2: have like a productive conversation Mm -hmm. that's not offensive what (laughs) yeah can you teach me your
0: ways (laughs) just just be an eternal optimist already and no one's even the mat no one's even mad in this room well
3: i would challenge you know to take out something practical out of this moving forward tomorrow at work most places that i have worked and that i know other people work in have A journal club, right? All the clinicians get together, let's have a journal club, and they pull a journal, and everybody says, oh, this article was very interesting. I saw that they did this very (laughs) interesting. Like, yeah, we need more research. Mm -hmm. I would say throw that out for right now, and in your journal club, put up a fluoro, and instead of having a conversation of what would you guys do, what would you do, how would you treat this, how would you treat this, everybody talk about what is actually wrong Mm -hmm. with the swallow, because I think as clinicians- Say what's wrong and say what's right. Yeah, exactly. And because I think we skip over that and go right to the treatment. Well, this is a swallow. Nobody talks about what's wrong. It's like, oh well. Have you tried a masaka with that patient? Have you tried a chin tug? Talk about what's wrong and yeah. do that in your clinical practice with your whatever hour a month you get allotted <laughs> from your management mm-hmm. team to have a journal club and do that and just talk about what's impaired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good I practical like suggestion. Thank you mm-hmm. guys for joining. Thank you. Thank you. This us. was fun. It was, it was fun. fun.
0: Can we just hit that bell one more time? (laughs) Oh, that was
3: that was a week. Do
0: it again. All right. Uh.